On the evening of October 19, 1330, 35-year-old Isabella of France was staying at a castle in Nottingham. A queen regent of England, she was there to oversee a session of parliament. That night, Isabella was conferring with her chief advisor, Roger Mortimer, and a gaggle of other allies. Her four-year reign was becoming increasingly unpopular. Instead of fair, equitable leadership, Isabella handed out land and titles to her favored courtiers, particularly Mortimer. Isabella knew she was on thin ice. Earlier that year, she had barely fended off a vengeful lord's rebellion. She was so paranoid about another uprising, she had personal custody over the castle's keys. The queen was right to be worried. As Isabella discussed strategy with her advisors, the door to her chamber flew open. Isabella was shocked to see her son, 17-year-old King Edward III, standing in the doorway. Several knights stood at his back, and their swords were drawn. They had the element of surprise and easily overwhelmed the few men defending Isabella. In short order, Roger Mortimer was hauled off in chains, and young Edward placed his mother under armed guard. Isabella's own son had usurped her, but she wasn't entirely surprised. After all, she had done the same thing to her husband. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. In this season, we're delving into the stories of bloody female rulers in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. This is the second episode on Isabella of France, who reigned as Queen of England from 1308 to 1330. But it wasn't until 1326 when she held real power. Last week, we covered Isabella's tempestuous marriage to King Edward II. Despite her abilities as a stateswoman, she found herself overshadowed by Edward's favored male advisors like Hugh Dispenser the Younger. This week, we'll follow Isabella as she makes the painful decision to turn on her husband. We'll also see her repeat King Edward's mistakes as she ruins her kingdom in order to enrich herself and her companion, Roger Mortimer. We dive into Isabella's treachery right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016... Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now, 
Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. On March 9, 1325, 29-year-old Isabella of France arrived in her homeland as the head of a crucial diplomatic mission. For years, England and France were at odds as to who controlled the territories of Ponthieu and Gascony, land that was technically in France. Tensions finally came to a head in July 1324, when an argument over jurisdiction of the village of Saint-Sardos led to both countries declaring war. Isabella's husband, King Edward II of England, trusted her to arrange a peace treaty with King Charles IV of France, who just so happened to be Isabella's brother. While Isabella's family ties made her an ideal representative for the peace talks, that wasn't Edward's only motivation to send her in his stead. Rather, he did it to protect his beloved Chamberlain and possible lover, Hugh Dispenser the Younger. Dispenser was almost universally loathed throughout England. So much so that just a few years earlier, a group of noblemen known as the Marcher Lords started a civil war to try and get rid of him. Ultimately, the Marchers were defeated, and many of them fled to the European continent. But they had a long memory. So when it came to negotiating peace with France, Edward was in a no-win situation. If he went himself and brought Dispenser, they'd be vulnerable to attacks from exiled marcher lords like Roger Mortimer, one of the king's most vocal critics. And if Edward went to France but left Dispenser at home, the Chamberlain would be at the mercy of the lords who resented his oversized influence at court. And so, Edward sent his wife instead. Sending Isabella wasn't without its own risks, though. Since she was the husband to one king and the sister to another, she was quite a valuable ransom target. Of course, would someone like Roger Mortimer want to risk drawing the ire of two kings? It would be a lot of unnecessary bloodshed just to get back at King Edward. Thankfully, Isabella arrived at her brother's court in France without issue, and she didn't seem to hold a grudge against her husband. Even though Edward had proverbially slapped Isabella in the face by confiscating her lands in southern England the year before, the two of them seemed to be on good terms. Perhaps she bought his excuse that he did it as a safeguarding measure against the French, or maybe she wanted to stay in Edward's good graces. Either way, she appeared to have nothing but love for her husband. In a letter sent to Edward from France on March 31, 1325, she called him my very sweet heart throughout. If she was mad at him for taking away her lands or for risking her safety, she didn't show it. And she backed up those words with actions. After nearly two months of negotiations, Isabella and King Charles agreed to a peace treaty on May 30th, 1325. Unfortunately, Edward was on the losing end of it. 
he had to pay Charles a significant financial tribute and surrendered his claim to the Agenais region, which contained the village of Saint-Sardos. But Isabella wasn't to blame for the unfavorable terms. Edward was losing the war, and he didn't have much leverage. If anything, Isabella got him the best deal possible. Normally, Isabella would have returned to England upon completion of the peace talks. But the treaty had a stipulation that made her want to stay in France for the time being. In addition to the financial penalties, Edward had to pay homage to Charles on August 29, 1325. This requirement was a major embarrassment. As a king in his own right, Edward balked at the thought of kneeling to his French counterpart. But if Edward wanted to keep his French holdings of Gascony and Ponthieu, he had to suck it up and kneel before King Charles. Unfortunately, Edward was still facing a lingering problem. If he went to France, he was essentially forfeiting Hugh Dispenser's life. And he couldn't have Isabella do it for him this time because she didn't have a claim to his French territories. But there was one other person who could fulfill the act in his place their son. In the summer of 1325, Prince Edward was 12 years old. Although he was still young, he was old enough to hold lands and titles. King Edward could bestow his French territories to the prince, who would then be required to pay homage to Charles IV. However, sending the prince had its own set of drawbacks. If King Edward transferred his French holdings to his son, the income from them would go to the prince's household not the king's. Even more worrisome, Prince Edward would still be vulnerable to attacks from Roger Mortimer and his displaced English allies, who were lurking somewhere in France. Plus, there was the risk that King Charles would renege on their peace and hold the prince hostage. Once again, King Edward was stuck between a rock and a hard place. But like before, his love for Hugh Dispenser was greater than his love for his family. So, on September 12, 1325, he sent his son to France. The young prince officially paid homage to King Charles on September 24th. Charles gladly accepted his nephew. But Isabella wasn't pleased with the situation. Although her business in France was finished, she refused to return to England. It's not completely clear why, but her marriage to King Edward had suddenly hit a breaking point. Most likely, it had to do with the fact that Edward prioritized Hugh Dispenser's safety over their sons. Prince Edward was the heir to the English throne. Hugh Dispenser was nothing more than a minor lord. The king cared more about his chamberlain than his legacy. And Isabella couldn't let that stand. Sometime around early November 1325, she publicly stated... I feel that marriage is a joining together of man and woman, and that someone has come between my husband and myself trying to break this bond. I protest that I will not return until this intruder is removed. King Edward didn't take kindly to Isabella's betrayal. In mid-November 1325, he stripped her of her income. On December 1st, he wrote her a letter demanding that she and Prince Edward return to England at once. He also doubled down on his support of Hugh Dispenser and refused to remove him from court. But Isabella held firm. She didn't want to go, and there was nothing forcing her to leave. 
In response, King Charles said, The Queen has come of her own will, and may freely return if she so wishes. But if she prefers to remain in these parts, she is my sister, and I refuse to expel her. With both sides firmly entrenched, King Edward and Isabella began a battle that many estranged spouses endure, determining their son's future. At the time, the prince was betrothed to the young King of Castile's sister, Leonor. Leonor's mother was distantly related to King Edward. The marriage would presumably bring Castile onto his side if there was a war between Edward and Isabella. However, King Edward didn't have Prince Edward marry Leonor before he left for France, and there was nothing legally forcing them to wed. Now that the prince was in Isabella's custody, she was free to secure a different match for him. In December 1325, Isabella negotiated a betrothal between Prince Edward and Philippa of Hainault. Philippa's father, Count William of Hainault and Holland, was Isabella's first cousin. More importantly, William had considerable resources and could raise a large army. With him on Isabella's side, she had a fighting chance against her husband's sizable forces. Although Prince Edward and Philippa needed to wait for dispensation from the Pope to marry, their betrothal was enough to bring others to Isabella's cause, most notably the exiled English lord, Roger Mortimer. Several years earlier, Isabella and Mortimer were enemies. He was one of the most powerful marcher lords who mobilized against King Edward. But in early 1326, he and Isabella joined forces. Presumably, he felt she was his best chance of returning home. It's possible he also saw Isabella as something much more significant. Just as there were rumors that King Edward and Hugh Dispenser were lovers, Isabella and Roger Mortimer's alliance was believed to be more than a political union. There's no direct evidence of whether this was true, but many contemporary chroniclers and modern historians alike believe that Isabella sought comfort with Mortimer as her marriage collapsed. However, even as the gulf between Isabella and Edward widened, there was pressure on them to reconcile. On February 15, 1326, Pope John XXII sent envoys to both parties as mediators. His representative seems to have gotten through to Isabella. She agreed to return to England if Hugh Dispenser left King Edward's side and her lands and titles were restored to her. However, King Edward refused to yield. In letters to King Charles and Prince Edward, the English king once again defended Hugh Dispenser and urged the prince to return home at once. The Pope's attempt at reconciliation was an abject failure. Over the next few months, 1326 became an arms race. On June 10th, Isabella promised to give the revenues from Prince Edward's French lands to William of Hainault in exchange for ships and war supplies. In response, King Edward tried to regain his claim over the prince's lands by having the English subjects living there harass their French counterparts. His gambit failed. King Charles occupied those lands and made sure the funds went to Prince Edward and therefore Isabella. Undaunted, Edward sent a force of 140 ships to invade Normandy in August 1326. As with almost every one of his military exploits, 
it didn't go well. He endured heavy losses and returned home empty-handed. Isabella took the opportunity to strike. Around September 21st, the 31-year-old queen launched her invasion of England. She had 95 ships and approximately 2,000 men supporting her. After years of insults, Isabella's loyalty had run out. She was going to depose her husband. Coming up, Isabella's invasion begins. Hi, it's Kate. From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, we all know that medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? In the new podcast series, Medical Murders, you'll discover a disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my dear friend, host Alastair Merton, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Around September 21st, 1326, Isabella's invasion force sailed for England. Although she boasted nearly 100 ships and 2,000 men, it was a relatively small army. And she worried whether or not she had enough men to usurp her husband, King Edward II. Shortly after landing at the coastal city of Orwell in Suffolk on September 24th, Isabella's forces were met by Thomas of Brotherton, King Edward's half-brother. Isabella's rebellion was in danger of being over before it even began. But Thomas didn't attack Isabella. He joined her. It turned out that many English lords hated Hugh Dispenser more than they respected the monarchy. After Thomas joined Isabella's cause, the influential bishops of Hereford, Lincoln Ely, and Norwich came to her aid as well. King Edward, holed up at the Tower of London, learned of Isabella's arrival three days after she landed. But by then, he was already at a disadvantage. After his failed attack on Normandy, King Edward's numbers were depleted. So much so that as Isabella's troops marched inland, they faced little resistance. 
when her opponents did choose to fight, Isabella showed no mercy, particularly when they took lands belonging to Hugh Dispenser and his family. She allowed her men to loot whatever they wished, as long as she and Roger Mortimer each received a quarter of the spoils. Desperate to turn the tide in his favor, Edward sent calls for soldiers throughout the country. He even released felons from jail in exchange for military service. In October, Edward even left the Tower of London and headed for the March of Wales, whose lords had rebelled against him a few years ago because of Hugh Dispenser. Perhaps Edward hoped they'd join him if he met them face to face. His efforts were unsuccessful. Within the week, Henry of Lancaster, whose brother Thomas had died at Edward's hands, pledged his sizable resources to Isabella's rebellion instead. Edward's decision to leave London was a spectacular misfire. He not only failed to win any significant support, but the moment he left, the people seized the Tower of London. Left with nowhere to go, King Edward, Hugh Dispenser, and a few others tried to sail away. On October 20th, 1326, they departed from southern Wales. Most likely, their destination was an island Dispenser owned in the Bristol Channel. From there, they could continue on to Ireland and perhaps raise Irish troops. However, the king couldn't even get the wind to cooperate. After five days of futile sailing, his party returned to shore. It was the latest in a string of blunders, and Isabella took full advantage of it. Because Edward had left English soil, Isabella claimed he abandoned the kingdom. In his stead, she appointed 13-year-old Prince Edward as keeper of the realm. It was essentially a symbolic gesture, but it sent a powerful message. King Edward II's reign was coming to an end. While Edward drifted around the ocean, Isabella attacked the city of Bristol, which was held by Hugh Dispenser's father. After an eight-day siege, the city fell on October 26th. Once again, Isabella showed no mercy. After a perfunctory trial, Dispenser the Elder was sentenced to death. The execution was gruesome and brutal. He was hanged, and then his body was fed to dogs. Afterward, Dispenser the Elder's head was placed on a spear and displayed in his home city of Winchester. It was a dark portend of things to come. On November 16, 1326, King Edward and Hugh Dispenser the Younger were captured in southern Wales. They surrendered without a fight. Edward was placed in Henry of Lancaster's custody and was treated with utmost respect. However, Hugh Dispenser the Younger wasn't so lucky. He was taken directly to Isabella, and if her treatment of his father was any indication, Dispenser's future looked bleak. His approximately 60-mile journey to Isabella was full of indignity. Dispenser was forced to ride atop a diminutive horse and made to wear a crown of nettles. Verses from the Bible were cut into his chest, shoulders, and arms. The entire way, two squires blew bugle horns into his ears. Thousands of people gathered to celebrate Dispenser's downfall. And that was only the beginning. 
Hugh Dispenser the Younger's so-called trial was held on November 24, 1326. After being read a laundry list of various accusations, he was sentenced to death. When the judge read the verdict, he proclaimed, Withdraw, you traitor, tyrant renegade. Go to your own justice, traitor, evil man, criminal. Immediately after, Dispenser was tied and dragged by four horses to Hereford Castle, where a 50-foot execution platform awaited him, specially built for the occasion. With Isabella presumably looking on, the executioner tied a noose around Dispenser's neck. But Dispenser was only partially strangled. Before he could die, he was lowered onto a ladder and his genitals were cut off. Then his gut was sliced open and his heart was removed from his chest. By then he was assuredly dead, but just for good measure, he was beheaded too. Dispenser's head was placed atop London Bridge. The rest of his body was separated into quarters and sent to the country's next four largest cities. We don't know if King Edward watched the horrific execution. However, we do know that Henry of Lancaster was present. And since Edward was in Henry's custody, he may have been forced to watch Hugh Dispenser's gruesome demise. From Hereford, King Edward was taken to Henry's stronghold of Kenilworth on December 5, 1326. Though he was treated well, he was still very much a prisoner, and his fate still had to be decided. Over the holidays, Isabella and her advisors debated what to do about Edward. Although the rebellion's goal of removing Hugh Dispenser was achieved, allowing Edward to continue ruling was out of the question. Just because Hugh Dispenser was gone, that didn't mean another upstart noble wouldn't replace him. After all, Dispenser had taken the place of Edward II's former favorite, Piers Gaveston. Additionally, if Edward retook the throne, he would likely do everything in his power to punish his wife. However, no king of England had ever been forcefully deposed by his own people. Isabella and Mortimer were in uncharted waters. Ultimately, they decided the best course of action was to compel the king to abdicate in favor of 14-year-old Prince Edward. But there was still the question of how to make him do it. On January 4, 1327, Isabella returned to London for the first time in two years. Three days later, Parliament met to discuss King Edward's fate. To Isabella's surprise, there wasn't much popular sentiment for deposing him. Although Hugh Dispenser was wildly unpopular at court, his meddling didn't particularly impact the rank and file. But Isabella had come too far to stop now. To turn the tide in her favor, Isabella worked her social connections. She convinced multiple civil organizations and high-ranking clergymen to vote for Edward's deposition. And to ensure their success, Isabella's allies planted men in the crowd to cheer for their proposal. The gambit worked. Parliament acquiesced to public opinion and approved of Edward's removal. The announcement was met with raucous cheers. With the matter settled, a delegation traveled to Kenilworth to break the news to King Edward. On January 21, 1327, Edward's household steward destroyed his staff of office. The king's reign was officially at an end. 
14-year-old Prince Edward's coronation took place on February 1, 1327. Although it's unclear if Isabella attended, her staunch ally Roger Mortimer was there. He seems to have played a prominent role in the proceedings. Since the young King Edward III was still a minor, he needed a regent to rule on his behalf until he turned 18. The honor went to his mother, Isabella, and unofficially Roger Mortimer, who was constantly by Isabella's side. But just because there was a new Edward on the throne, that didn't mean the old one didn't still pose a threat. After he was deposed, Isabella and Roger Mortimer decided to transfer Edward II into the custody of someone they could fully trust. His new jailers were to be Mortimer's son-in-law and brother-in-law. Essentially, he was at Roger Mortimer's mercy. On April 3, 1327, Edward was moved to Barclay Castle. As before, he was treated with utmost respect. Records show that his servants traveled with him, and he was well-fed upon arriving. Keeping Edward happy and healthy was a good way to ensure he didn't try to agitate a rebellion of his own. But he wasn't the only challenge Isabella faced. There was another foe waiting in the wings. With England in the middle of unprecedented political upheaval, an old foe decided it was the perfect time to strike. King Robert Bruce of Scotland. Bruce was a thorn in Edward II's side throughout his entire reign, and he was eager to test Isabella's resolve now that she was running things. It was Isabella's first major test as a ruler in her own right, and it wouldn't be the last. Coming up, Isabella's leadership comes under pressure. Now back to the story. Upon taking over as the regent of 14-year-old King Edward III, 32-year-old Queen Isabella secured her position by putting her husband in Roger Mortimer's custody. But almost immediately, the former Edward II wasn't the only challenger Isabella had to worry about. With England's political situation still disrupted, King Robert Bruce of Scotland went on the offensive. Edward II had failed to bring Bruce to heel. Now it was Isabella's turn to deal with the pugnacious Scottish king. On June 15, 1327, Bruce invaded England. Roger Mortimer rode north to the realm's defense with the young King Edward III accompanying him. It was a complete and total disaster. Bruce's forces overwhelmed the English, and Edward III was almost captured. Making matters worse, Edward II's remaining allies seized the opportunity to try and free him from Barclay Castle. Though there weren't many of them, they were still fiercely devoted to their former king and wanted him back on the throne. Sometime in mid to late June of 1327, a small group of loyalists, led by brothers Thomas and Stephen Dunhevid, infiltrated Barclay Castle. Somehow, they evaded the guards, grabbed the former king, and escaped into the surrounding countryside. Unfortunately, it's not clear what happened to Edward II during this time. His escape was an extremely sensitive issue, and there's almost no correspondence referring to it. However, it seems like he was back in Barclay's custody by July 27, 1327, and by the fall, the rest of the Dunhevid gang was either captured, killed, or in hiding. The Dunhavid plot was only one of several attempts to free Edward II. It was clear that as long as Edward lived, 
he would be a threat. And there was only one way to ensure those escape attempts stopped. On September 21, 1327, Edward II died. When Isabella learned of her husband's death on September 24th, she was told he died of natural causes. However, it seems like nobody really believed it. Many suspected that Roger Mortimer and possibly Isabella herself had orchestrated Edward II's death. Unfortunately, there's no record of how Isabella reacted to her husband's passing, but she seems to have behaved as a grieving widow was expected to. However, she never visited his body while it lay in state at Gloucester Cathedral. Whatever Isabella's involvement was in her husband's death, she and King Edward III were present at Edward II's funeral on December 20, 1327. Also in attendance was Roger Mortimer, who wore a black robe specifically tailored for the occasion. But he probably wasn't overly upset to see the former monarch buried. Edward II's death paved the way for Roger Mortimer to exert more influence on the kingdom. Over the previous year, Mortimer had gathered whatever lands and titles he could. He gobbled up extensive holdings in Wales, especially those formerly belonging to Hugh Dispenser the Younger and his allies. History was repeating itself. Throughout Edward II's reign, he came under fire for giving his favored companions preferential treatment. Now, Isabella was doing the same thing for Roger Mortimer. Not to mention, Isabella's record against the Scottish was even worse than her husband's. After the failed campaign in early 1327, Isabella ended England's attempts to conquer the Scots. On May 4, 1328, the Treaty of Northampton was ratified. England officially renounced all claims to Scotland and acknowledged Robert Bruce as its rightful king. It was not received well in England. The treaty became known as the Shameful Peace. Even more embarrassingly, Isabella betrothed her daughter Joan to Bruce's son, David. Their marriage ensured that there was more than a piece of paper maintaining peace between the two countries. There was blood. Meanwhile, across the Channel, Isabella was also meddling in French affairs, and with little success. Earlier in 1328, her brother, King Charles IV of France, passed away. With no immediate heirs, the throne went to Charles and Isabella's cousin, Philip of Valois. However, Edward III had a better claim to the French throne since he was Charles's nephew and was his closest male relative. At Isabella's urging, an envoy was sent to France on May 16, 1328, to press Edward's claim. But because Edward's claim went through his mother, the French ultimately decided on Philip, whose ties to the royal family were through his father. Although they didn't say it, the French probably didn't want to be ruled by an English king. Isabella's former diplomatic triumphs were a thing of the past, and back home, things were continuing to spiral out of control. At the meeting of Parliament in October 1328, Roger Mortimer made himself the Earl of March. This gave him control over all the land along the English-Welsh border. The unprecedented power grab didn't go over well with the other lords, particularly Henry of Lancaster. 
he had joined Isabella's rebellion to regain some of the lands Edward II took from him, which included territory along the Welsh border. But Mortimer's power grab only further diminished his influence. So in response, Henry launched his own rebellion against Isabella and Mortimer. Just like when Henry's brother had rebelled against Edward II and Hugh Dispenser, several of Isabella and Roger Mortimer's key allies joined his side. They all had one thing in common. They had a bone to pick with the Queen's favorite advisor. Throughout November and December of 1328, the two sides played a game of diplomatic cat and mouse, and by the new year, the two sides finally clashed on the battlefield. Details on what happened are hazy, but one chronicler wrote that in January 1329, Mortimer besieged the city of Leicester over the course of eight days. Another source wrote that Isabella participated in a battle in Bedford, adorned as a knight armed. Whatever really happened, the result was the same. On February 9, 1329, Henry of Lancaster officially surrendered. He agreed to pay a huge fine of 30,000 pounds, which was almost three times more than his deceased brother, who had been the richest man of England, made in a year. Although Henry was subdued, as soon as his rebellion ended, someone else started plotting against the queen, her own son. By early 1329, King Edward III was 16 years old. He had been on the throne for two years and didn't appreciate the control his mother and Roger Mortimer had over his kingdom's affairs. They had driven the realm into ruin. When they took over in 1326, the royal treasury contained nearly 80,000 British pounds. By late 1330, that sum was down to a paltry 40. Four zero. If things continued as they were, Edward III could face a legitimate rebellion of his own. Edward III sent a close advisor to the Pope with a letter. Written in Edward's own hand, it was a sort of cipher that allowed the Pope to compare the king's handwriting to any future letters. If they didn't match Edward's handwriting, that meant they were probably sent by Isabella or Roger Mortimer. More importantly, this letter indicated that Edward III wanted to rule on his own. But freeing himself from Isabella and Mortimer's shackles wouldn't be easy. If he tried to raise an army against them, it could plunge the country into a bloody civil war. And unlike Isabella, he didn't have the luxury of gathering forces from another continent. If Edward III was going to overthrow his regents, he had to do it covertly. Unfortunately, Mortimer was too well-connected, and at some point he caught wind of the king's plans. In early October 1330, Mortimer questioned the king's closest allies, but none of them betrayed Edward. Their refusal to turn on the king gave Isabella and Mortimer cause for concern. Perhaps the tide was turning against them. Ahead of a mid-October meeting of Parliament, they took shelter in Nottingham Castle, Isabella was so afraid of getting attacked, she personally held on to the castle's keys. She was right to be worried. One of her son's allies was familiar with the castle's layout. He told Edward about a secret tunnel that led into the fortress. On October 19, 1330, the king and a group of knights infiltrated Nottingham Castle under the cover of darkness. 
Evading the guards, they made it all the way to Isabella's chambers undetected. Listening through the door, Edward likely heard his mother meeting with her counselors. No doubt Roger Mortimer loudly stated his opinion on whatever matter they were discussing. The king steeled himself. This was the time to take control of his kingdom. Edward and his men burst through the door, swords drawn. Mortimer and his men tried to fight back, but the intruding knights overpowered them. Three of Isabella's allies were killed, and a fourth was captured while trying to escape through a latrine chute. Roger Mortimer was bound and gagged while Isabella was kept under guard in her chambers. Isabella's brief chaotic reign was over. In a matter of minutes, a handful of men had overthrown a kingdom. Like Hugh Dispenser before him, Mortimer's trial was a sham. Held on November 25, 1330, he was accused of 14 crimes, including the murder of King Edward II. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. Four days later, Mortimer was forced to don the black robe he wore to Edward II's funeral and was taken to gallows outside of London. Before he was executed, he was stripped naked and read the same Bible verse that had been carved into Hugh Dispenser's skin. Then he was hanged by the neck until he died. In a small mercy, Mortimer was spared the horrific execution Hugh Dispenser had to suffer. But the message was clear. Like Dispenser, Mortimer had far exceeded his authority and paid the price for it. Meanwhile, Isabella escaped any major punishment. Unlike the strained relationship between the queen and her husband, she and Edward III remained on amicable terms. Rather than blame his mother, young Edward used Roger Mortimer as a scapegoat for the kingdom's troubles. However, 35-year-old Isabella's days in the English court were at an end. She went into what amounted to an early retirement, spending most of her time in northern England. She watched on as Edward III restated his claim to the French throne in 1337, kicking off the conflict known as the Hundred Years' War, though in reality, it lasted even longer than a century. When Isabella died in 1358 at 63 years old, there were still 94 years of fighting on the horizon. It seemed that Edward III learned from his mother's example. Fifty years earlier, Isabella's wedding had cemented peace between England and France. She was expected to produce heirs and ensure that peace persisted throughout the ages. However, Isabella wasn't interested in what others expected of her. Despite the era's treatment of women and her own husband's attempt to discard her, Isabella forged her own legacy. It may have been one of conflict, war, and death. But in the end, it was hers. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we begin our dive into Isabella I of Castile, who not only helped kick off the Age of Discovery, but orchestrated the Spanish Inquisition. Among the many sources we used for these episodes, we found Isabella of France, The Rebel Queen by Catherine Warner extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. Before we go, I hope you remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.